0: Good morning everyone and happy Holy Week. Glad to see you all. We are nearing the end of our Acts study together and so I've got a little special invitation. Is this too loud? Yep, hold on. (laughs) I I just won't get really excited today, how about that? Yeah, I'll try. Um, So we are nearing the end of our Acts reading and so this lesson or study, and so we have to decide what we're gonna do next year. So here's my request. Think about what you all may actually want to study. I've had a number of recommendations so far, and I'd love to know what you all think. And so if you have an opinion, and maybe you don't, which is fine. Um, I know most of you and most of you have opinions. And so if you have an opinion, then let us know. Grab one of those little cards in the pew back and you can drop one at the door on your way out or maybe next week. We likely won't decide until the summer, but we'll let you all know. Um, A number of people have been interested. You may have noticed on the cards you got, and then you're gonna see it um, in Easter bulletins, that we're going to be doing a sermon series in the Easter season on Revelation. And every three years in the Easter season, the epistle, well, it's not epistle, the New Testament reading is from Revelation. And we kind of track Revelation over seven weeks. We start and we skip through until we're to the end. And Revelation is one of those things that people don't really know about. seems kind of fantastic and sci-fi and weird, and it is. Um, And so what we're gonna do is do a little sermon series on that, but I've gotten a number of people interested in maybe learning more than just that. So that's one of those interesting ideas. Someone has referenced Romans. Romans is very interesting. Here's the problem with Romans. (laughs) (laughs) Only one. Um, Any of Paul's letters, although they are good in moments, they're not a story. And I don't know how well something that's not a story plays in this kind of environment. I think if you were studying in a small group and having discussions, something like one of Paul's letters would make sense. But when it's didactic like this, mostly, that gets a little harder. Not impossible, but that's the thing that I'm kind of rolling around in my head. And oh, by the way, there's the Old Testament. So there's plenty of stuff in there that is fascinating. Um, And so to be honest with you, I'm much better at the Old Testament than the New Testament. Um, I like Jesus and all, but I kind of feel like the point of the New Testament is Jesus. The Old Testament's got all kinds of drama. Whenever I teach the the Old Testament to young people, particularly like youth confirmands, I say you have never seen a reality TV show quite as good as the Old Testament. So there's a lot of good stuff in there. So just be thinking about it. If you have an opinion, let me know. If you don't, don't worry about it. Um, I'd love to think through if there are a couple things we wanna do. You know, we started this two years ago and I knew we would do Luke and Acts year one, year two there may be something we wanna do, and maybe we have to do that year four and do something year three so that year four makes most sense. So that's what I'm trying to think through is how we can line that up. So if you've got an opinion, let me know. Otherwise, we only have two more weeks after this week. So we are almost to the end. I hope you will hang in there and then we will be finished the first Wednesday of May and then take a nice summer break. So let's jump in to chapter 26, With a prayer. The Lord be with you. you. Let us pray. God, as we are in this holiest of weeks, we ask you to be with us. Calm our hearts and minds. Make space inside of us that your spirit may fill us up. Help us to be in touch with what is most important, with what is core to who you call us to be. And that when we do that, we are empowered to act on the love that we have received. Today, we hold in our hearts and minds all those in our community who need your healing touch, those who feel alone, those who need to know your love. We remember all those we love and see no longer. And we pray for all those who will be visiting this church community over the next few days, that they will be open to hearing your word and being part of the change and the transformation it can make in their life. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Chapter 26. Chapter 26 is a very talky chapter. Paul is talking a lot. And we may remember last week that we have gotten to this point in the story of Acts through Paul's arrest. So Paul was arrested over two years ago at this point, and he was saved by the Roman Tribune. He was taken to Felix. Felix didn't want to do anything. So for two years, Paul sat in prison. Felix is out. Festus is in. Paul comes back on the scene because the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem appealed to Festus to actually give them Paul because they really want to kill Paul. Festus figures this out and so he seeks some guidance because he's about as indecisive as Felix. And so he seeks some guidance from the newer king, Agrippa. And so last week we had gotten to the point where Paul is now with Festus and Agrippa is there as well. And Agrippa has been brought in because he's the local leader. Festus, although he is present he also represents Rome and Rome tries to balance that desire for local leadership because most of the time that will end up better or at least, you know, worst case scenario, the Romans have a scapegoat that they can get rid of and replace and they have not necessarily been weakened by that. So Festus is trying to get Agrippa to make a decision on his behalf. So where we are right now is Agrippa has come on in in a parade with his sister and lover, Bernice, and they're just kind of a mess. And so Agrippa comes in and Paul gets the chance to make his defense to Agrippa. So we've got three sections today. The first is Paul's defense with Agrippa. The second is Paul's conversion, again. In the third section today is Paul's appeal to Agrippa. So he starts with the defense, and he goes to his appeal. So, if you read ahead, or if you're just looking at this right now, you're thinking, what's new? You're not wrong. There's a lot of repetition of ideas we have already heard and so as I've said in the past when Luke does this you know Luke is not trying to fill space he's making these decisions intentionally and so when Luke comes at something that we think we've heard before what I want us to do is try and look at what is new How is Luke retelling the story in a different way? What are the details that he's putting in this time that he may have left out before? What are some of the conclusions that Paul is drawing? Because it does a few things. It lets us into Paul's mind, kind of, because Luke is the one telling the story. So it's a combination of Paul and Luke to see what it is they're trying to communicate to their readers. <clears throat> it's also important to remember that this was story was written after all of this happened with Paul. So for Luke, he's got a secondary purpose. Yes, there's the historic recounting of Paul, but there's also a, an inspiring way that, Paul is tr- that Luke is trying to impact his hearers. So you've got these early Christian groups perhaps very new followers of Jesus who are trying to figure this out. Luke probably knows what some of the stumbling blocks have been to those early Jesus followers. And so the way that he tells this story is going to be specifically addressing those stumbling blocks. How can he help people, even if he's not face-to-face, get over some of those early Christian hurdles? So we're gonna look at the way that Paul defends himself in front of Agrippa and then see what we might be able to glean that's new from the way that Luke tells this story. So as Paul makes his defense, I'm not gonna read most of it, there are a few big ideas. The first of two is that Paul makes very clear he knows Judaism. Now, now we have know this. Paul has made this clear in the past. The important conclusion to draw here, though, is that Paul is speaking to a Jew about how well he knows Judaism. So remember, he's addressing Agrippa. Agrippa is a, from the line of Herod. These are local people, but Agrippa's been multiple generations deep in the privilege and the bubble of the monarchy. So Agrippa doesn't have quite a grip on reality. I know, that was kind of funny. Um, So Agrippa is being appealed to by Paul about his Jewishness. Paul is setting himself up as the Jews Jew because it's important that he makes very clear to Agrippa he has not heard about Judaism and heard about Jesus and decided Jesus is right. It's not shallow like that. He was as rooted in the Jewish tradition as he could possibly be. And yet, when he heard Jesus' speak to him and when he heard what Jesus had done, he was changed. It's super, super important that Paul identifies his own Jewishness in the same way that if you are part of a recovery community or if you know someone who's in recovery, who best helps people recover from an addiction? People in recovery, right? So someone like me, who's never gone through that process, sorry, there's something in my throat, okay. Someone like me who's never gone through addiction recovery can talk theoretically about it, can say it is super, can talk about how I've seen other people recover and change their life and be transformed and all of these things, but I'm still talking about something I have not done. Paul is like a recovering addict encouraging an addict to recover. He knows really what is going on in Judaism so clearly and so strongly, and he is passionate about Judaism. And that brings me to my second point. Paul connects his faith in Jesus with his Jewishness. It is easy for us to kind of thoughtlessly or unintentionally say, you're either Jewish or you're Christian. Paul says, no, no, no. I am very Jewish and what Jesus has done is taken us another big step forward. Paul's understanding of Christianity is that it is everything good about Judaism and then some. He has not jettisoned what it means to be Jewish. He has simply taken all of that identity from the ancestors to the promised land to the kingdoms to God's chosen people and purpose and said, what we have actually figured out now is that God's opening this up to every person, that God perhaps never meant for it not to be open to everyone. And Jesus has clarified that. But Paul is very quick to not criticize Judaism at all but rather to say, through Jesus, we are getting this sense of completion, of wholeness that we were missing. That's very, very important for us because I think that there's a sensibility about humanity's incompleteness and then completeness through Christ that really should matter to us now. So I want to pause there and go back to this idea of speaking from authority. We all have a particular kind of authority, knowledge or experience we can speak from. I hope that you have in your life gone through some kind of self-awareness process, maybe multiple times in multiple different ways, to ask yourself, really, who am I? Who am I? If we don't know who we are, it's difficult for us to really ever do what we can do to fulfill a bigger purpose. Now I say that also knowing that there is is a popular way of like going to find yourself or something, which is, is fine. I mean, if you've gone to find yourself, that's no problem. I have a cousin who was assistant DA in Portland, Oregon, who just hadn't gotten married. He's a few years younger than me and decided, you know what, he's done working a law job and so he just up and quit and decided he was gonna travel Southeast Asia for nine months. He's like in Thailand right now or something. Instagram is showing me where he, where he is. And he's, you know, like around campfires and sailing on boats and rivers or I don't know what he's doing, um, but he's finding himself. God bless. I mean, you know, that's fine. I, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, We all need to do that in some way, right? We all have to somehow find out who we are, but then we have to accept who we are and go from the place of where we are and who we are and grow. And that's the part that I think a lot of people struggle with is being able to accept who they are honestly and then still grow and not be self-critical and not be worried about what we're not, and simply go from the right starting place. I remember I had a conversation with a priest years ago where I said that at some point along the way, seminary or wherever, I had this really important revelation that I'm a straight white guy from an upper middle class family and I'm well educated. I am. There's nothing I can do about that. I can't be someone else. That is the place of authority I can speak from. I can't speak from other conditions or other experiences. And so for me, it's important to be in a church that's kind of like me, right? I mean, I kind of just described St. Michael, not every person, but mostly, and that is okay. We don't have to feel bad about it, but we need to also know where we are and who we are and what our experiences has been so that we can then be changed and transformed and grow from there. And there are plenty, I mean, first off, most of the people in this room are not men. So there we go, we've got some differentiation. And I think that so long as we know who we are, we can grow. Life then gives us experiences that invite us to be transformed and changed. When I was in Memphis, mm, it's probably almost eight years ago now, I had a really, really close friend who was the senior pastor of the Lutheran Church that was downtown, I was in the downtown parish, and we'd become very close and I was home over Christmas, home in Florida, I was back where I grew up in Florida, over Christmas and I got a call while I was out to dinner with my family and it was him. And I didn't answer because I was sitting at the table, then he texted me and he said, I need to talk to you. And so I, excuse myself, walked outside and he was calling because that morning they had woken up and found that their two-year-old had died overnight. And it was a, it was a tragic sort of experience, because it's something any parent knows, the two-year- old had a low fever, like a hundred, 101. I mean, really nothing. Like unless it's your first child and your first fever, you know 101 is like, "Go to bed, right? Um, like, here's some water, stop talking, go to sleep. And so They had sort of said to themselves, you know, if it doesn't feel well in the morning. We'll take him to the doctor. It's the first day of a fever. Kids just are kind of like petri dishes of gross. And so they have fevers all the time. So he just put the child to bed. And they woke up in the morning, and he was dead. And at that point, they didn't know what had happened. They had no idea. And so over the course of the next few weeks, they discovered that there was nothing really wrong, that there had been some kind of complication. He had stopped breathing and that was it. And I remember talking to him and we were good friends. And part of his struggle was, of course he was worried about his wife. They had a newborn child as well. And so the newborn, of course, you know, as newborns are, they just don't, they are not aware of those sorts of things. But he was most concerned about his wife, concerned in his congregation because Obviously, everyone knew. And so how do you speak to people? And what he really didn't want was a lot of I'm so sorry, um, which is so nice. But when you know, hundreds of people need to give you a hug and tell you they're sorry, like, that actually does not help. And you know, he was trying to figure out how to navigate that because he doesn't want to, anyway. And I can remember saying to him, and I said, I will say this, and if you want to punch me, you can. But the truth is, you now have an experience from which you can talk about. Sorry. <laughs> I haven't, haven't like gotten weepy in here for weeks. I didn't even know it's gone. I said, you can now talk about the real truth of God's love in a way that I never want to be able to talk about. I don't want that authority. I, want, I am happy to die having never been able to talk about that. But he was so aware that God still loved him. I mean, he felt it, even though this horrible thing had happened. And I said, that is the kind of opportunity that we all in our own unique way have. And what Paul's doing in this moment, in this chapter, is he's taking his own experience and using it. We all have that too. And for some of us, I hope for most of us, we don't have that kind of experience. But we all have something. And it may or may not be what we think is good enough. I remember I spoke at a spirituality retreat years back and the, the theme of the retreat was stuck and unstuck, and we were asked to talk about a time in our life when we were stuck and how we got unstuck. And I, as I was, I was one of the two priests kind of keynote speaking at this retreat, and the other priest, and I was way younger than anyone they'd ever asked to speak at this before, and the person, other person speaking, um, I sort of knew, and I knew he had a little bit of an interesting history And I was talking to Nicole and I said, you know what? He's gonna get up there and he's gonna tell some story. I had no idea if he had this story. So he's gonna tell some story about having a nervous breakdown or being, you know, hitting rock bottom with addiction or something, and how God got him out. I had nothing. I was like, what am I supposed to say? I can't talk about like overcoming heroin or something. I mean, I have nothing to say. I am so boring. I mean, there was just I had nothing. And it took me a couple days because I was seriously worried about this, you know, getting up and being like, well, I got a C on a test once. (laughs) I mean, it was so, I was so boring. And then I realized that what I was doing was equating transformation or being stuck with something bad. That's not necessarily the case. And so I flipped it. And I talked about actually achieving something I had worked really hard to achieve. And when I did, was not satisfying. Was not what I thought it was gonna be. And what ended up happening in that audience was most of the people knew that. The guy did get up and talked about nervous breakdown and being hospitalized for three weeks and all the other stuff. And I was like, see, I told you. And of course, there were people there. You know, there are 600 people at this this retreat. Of course, some people there identified with that. But what I realized after I spoke is the great majority of people understood what it meant to really, really want something and to think it was gonna be everything. And then you got it. And it was nothing like you thought it was gonna be. We all have some experience that has disappointed, that has fallen short, that has duped us or tempted us into thinking is as important as God. And it's not. And if we can be honest about that, then we can actually become the kinds of inspirational evangelists that Paul is. Because all we have to do is give everyone us and then point them to Christ and God does the rest. All right, so let's move on. In the rest of this first section, Paul makes three important claims that I want to make sure we don't miss. If you look at verse six of chapter 26, read a few verses real fast. Paul says, verse six, Now I stand here on trial on account of my hope in the promise made by God to our ancestors, a promise that our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. It is for this hope, Your Excellency, that I am accused by the Jews. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Three claims he's making real fast. The first, he claims his rootedness, right? I'm on trial on account of my hope and the promise made to, by God to our ancestors. So Paul says, God made a promise, and I believe it. Second, this promise is for all the Jews and it's what they hope for day and night. What he's hinting at, and he will clarify in a second, is this promise of life beyond what we can see. Now we call that resurrection and the Pharisees had begun to develop this idea of resurrection. Paul says all the Jews, well, not all the Jews. The Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. But historic documentation shows that especially in Jerusalem, the majority of Jews fell underneath the umbrella of the Pharisees that did have this sense of some kind of resurrection. Now, how that resurrection played out, people disagreed. But the point was either you're, you die and you're dead, the end, that's the Sadducees, or you die in something, and that was the Pharisees. And that something may be very far off in the future, but it is in the future, something will happen. Third, Paul says it's for this hope of the resurrection that we believe Jesus has begun to fulfill. So one, two, three. God made a promise. Most of the good Jews believe that God's going to do something more than we can see, and we think God's done it in Jesus. Boom, boom, boom. So now we get to Paul's conversion story again. So before we get to the conversion story, any thoughts or questions about what we've done so far? Yes, so the question is, uh, where do the Pharisees get this belief of something after death, of there being something after death? Most of the prophets, I can't just recall to you the passages because I'm not Baptist, um, most, Most of the prophets do point to something beyond death, that there will be something, especially when we get into prophets like, we see a lot of this in Isaiah. I know we've got a little bit of it in Amos and Jeremiah where it's part and parcel with this idea of Messiah. So the development of messianic promise comes after the exile. So here's the quick reminder history. You've got all the creation mythology and all that stuff. Then you've got God speak to Abraham. You've got the promise that passes on, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And then the Jews are in Egypt. Moses gets them out. Joshua takes them into the promised land. You've got the kingdom period, Saul, David, Solomon. Then the exile. Up until that point, everything had been moving up, right? The market was giving them a good return consistently. And so they weren't so much worried about a downturn because it just wasn't happening. The exile was the big market crash. And all of a sudden they had to ask themselves, well, what happens if we don't just keep getting better and better? Ah, enter the profits. The profits come during and after the exile, mostly. And most of what the prophets talk about is what's gonna happen in the future. Some of those prophets create an idea of savior, of Messiah. That's not really a thing until the exile. And it makes sense why it's not a thing because they didn't really need a savior. Saving them from what? From all the good stuff? Instead, when things got bad, the prophets began to reveal this idea of a savior, a Messiah, and it was that Messiah that was then tied into the sense that death is not the end. And the Messiah is going to explain to us how death is not the end. The Messiah will actually bear a new reality, a new world into existence. And that new world will be beyond even death itself. We read a lot more into what the prophets say now that we've seen Jesus. If we go back and read the prophets without, it's difficult to even do this, but if we can separate Jesus away and just read the prophets, eh, yeah, they kinda talk about something like Jesus, but let me be very clear. The prophets are prophesying a Messiah. For us to say that Isaiah knew Jesus was coming and was telling everybody about Jesus means one of two things. Either Isaiah was a fortune teller, which Isaiah was not, and if Isaiah was speaking about Jesus, he sure did so really badly. Um, He's not clear at all. He gets lots of stuff wrong and he never names him And so, what a bad prophet. Well, no, Isaiah's not a bad prophet. Isaiah's not talking about Jesus. Isaiah's talking about Messiah. And so what Paul is doing here is he's taking that promise from God with Abraham, the talk of Messiah that everybody was trying to figure out, and saying, we know what he meant, Jesus. But it all anchors itself in the first big major downturn, which was for them the exile. Any other questions or thoughts? I see it, yes. Yeah, do most major religions believe something after death? Um, You're gonna say, so are we gonna define major as lots of people, the greatest populations? Because if we're gonna do it that way, you've got four. You basically have Christianity and Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism, that's it. Judaism doesn't even register when it comes to total demographic population in the world. Um, Those other four are leaps and bounds, the largest in the world. Judaism and Christianity both believe in some kind of life after death, for sure. Judaism, I'm sorry, Christianity and Islam. Sorry, let me say that. Christianity and Islam both universally believe in something about life after death. And most of what Christianity and Islam believe about divine unseen stuff, so for example, angels, is all pretty much exactly the same. Um, Islam actually has a much stronger uh, angelic awareness than Christianity does. So they're very similar in that sense of what is unseen and what is promised and all the other stuff. Which is why if, you, if you've studied Islam at all, you know that Islam believes that Christians are the people of the book. Christians are sacred. You, you don't hurt Christians. Christians aren't quite, <laughs> what Islam, it's interesting because we get it both ways. We can very easily say Jews are great, right? They just don't quite get it because they haven't quite figured Jesus out. And that's unfair for us to characterize Judaism that way. But many Christians do, because they're lazy or they don't care to be, I don't know, generous. Um, We get it on the other side, too, because most Muslims would say, Christianity, they're so nice, right? They, They think they understand what's going on, but they don't quite get it. Islam's entire identity is based on Christians messed up what Jesus came to do. That's the whole thing. And so we try, like we mean well, but we just have kind of messed it up and made it messy. So instead, now they have God's literal word. So you had people speaking God's word, then you had God and Jesus talking but we still messed it up because all Jesus did was tell some people and those people wrote down what Jesus said. Well, there's still this telephone game going around where Jesus told some apostles who told some disciples who ultimately wrote it down. Well, you know, if you ever played telephone with anybody, you know it doesn't quite work solidly that way. And so it's close. So instead with Islam, we have God's actual words. You can't change them. You don't translate them. You learn them literally what God wants us to know. Well, you know, in their defense, in all fairness, that makes sense to me, right? I mean, it makes sense that we could certainly misconstrue Jesus's intentions. I mean, please, is that possible? Are you kidding? I mean, like everyone does that right? I mean, which Christian group actually really gets it right? Jesus is not complicated. Jesus is just inconvenient because we like doing it a certain way. And Jesus says, probably this way instead of that way. And we're like, crap, because we really like all our stuff. I say all that because Hinduism and Buddhism really don't have a life after death idea. Uh, it's different and if you were with me that day that I went full tangent on linear timeline or cyclical time with east and west, then remember eastern uh, eastern understanding of time is cyclical, which means we are repeating things that's where you get the idea of karma and reincarnation it's not some kind of weird uh, magic devil stuff. It's just, they don't understand that the past is, we understand the past is back there and we're never gonna see it again, and the future's up here and we're getting there. In the East, it's cyclical. And so you kind of do stuff over again, and you live over again. And so life after death is not a thing because you're being born again. Born again right? This is not, I mean, it's not that separate. But because of that born-again cycle that can go hundreds and hundreds of times, what develops within Buddhism is the sense that you're either on the wheel or off. And when you're off, then you've actually come to understand everything about God. So you can kind of call that heaven, maybe, but they would not say it's, Buddhism understands it's not a physical place. I find Buddhism interesting in the sense that I think it's troublesome to think of heaven as a place. Mm, where is it? it may, maybe it used to be up in the clouds. Well, we figured all that out a long time ago. There, heaven's not like in the clouds, like that's space. And so maybe it's really far away, Well, that's dumb, y'all. I mean, that's kind of one of those things where you're just like, bless your heart, don't stop, right? You don't need heaven to be like beyond what we can see in the galaxy or something. Stop, that's dumb. So instead, what then is it? Well, why does it have to be a place at all? Well, the only reason we think it has to be a place is because that's the only way we understand stuff. We are place-based right now. But our souls don't have to be. And so what if our souls are no longer place-based? I mean, God's everywhere in everything all the time. Won't, wouldn't we just be that way after death? And it doesn't mean we can't have sweet moments of like grandma's watching you from above or something. I mean, which is so nice and there's nothing wrong with that. But the, you almost anthropomorphize God by making God gendered, or human, or has eyes. Does God have eyes? I mean, no. What, does God have hands? I don't know. We have hands, so we can be God's hands and feet in the world, but sorry, I'm way off now. Um, <laughs> this is just like on and on and on, but I think it's important to know the difference between the Eastern and Western way of understanding things, and it's also for me, I mean, one, if, I, if I want people, Americans, to understand one thing. It's that Islam's, Islam's a great tradition and it's really close to us. And what we see is the, the smallest, smallest subset of ugly in Islam. And it's not the majority of really great people. And the stories we have overlap with such significance that it's just like you telling one story and me telling the other story of St. Michael. That's, That's the only real reason their stories are different. Now, that being said, I think Jesus gets it right. I mean, Jesus completes God's purpose and we can be complete in Christ. But I'm not saying anything about anyone else. I think for us, for me, I'll speak me, Jesus is the complete wholeness of what God wants for us we just have trouble getting there because we're flawed, we're sinful, we give in to temptation, we are egotistical, we are on and on and on, all of those things. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't want us in the end. What else? (laughs) Okay, good, let's go to Paul's conversion. Paul's conversion, oh my gosh, I talk too much. Okay, so we've got, we've got 12 minutes. So here's what we're gonna do with this. Paul's conversion and Paul's appeal to Agrippa. The ultimate goal of Paul in this entire conversation in chapter 26 is going to be to appeal to Agrippa and Agrippa's sensibility as a Jew. So as Paul tells his conversion story, what Paul really wants Agrippa to hear is that Paul has received a revelation from God, and Paul is going to be faithful to God in that revelation. That is a critically important idea for Paul in his defense. Ultimately, what he says to Agrippa is, you're a Jew, And I think you know all the stuff about being Jewish. And maybe Agrippa's not going to worship regularly and maybe Agrippa's sleeping with his sister. I mean, you know, he's not perfect. But what Paul says is, you're a Jew and you know what I'm talking about. It's kind of like a person who knows about Christianity but never comes to church and never really does much about it, but they know the story. Like, you know this story, and if you're honest, you, it matters to you, right? What did we just see two days ago? Notre Dame burns, right? France cannot, is, it would be hard for France to get much more agnostic and atheist, right? And what did you see? All these French people weeping, singing, taking pictures, posting about how heartbroken they were. It's not about the building. Yes, it's a beautiful building, but these people who may not have been to church in decades, that church meant something to them. That church represented something that was buried so deep in them, they may not have known it was even there anymore. But the reaction to the fire was so visceral because Notre Dame was for them, the church. And I think that's what Paul's doing here with Agrippa. Paul knows that Agrippa may have forgotten that this stuff matters to him, but Paul's gonna gamble that it's deep down in him and he can appeal to it. So Paul's conversion story is about hearing from God and obeying. So again, we're gonna go through the main points of Paul's conversion story. There are five, and I'm gonna throw in a sixth. And this this comes straight from N.T. Wright, so I can't claim this. He did a good job in this section, I think. First, Paul's message is deeply rooted in the scriptures. Second, his message is about Jesus fulfilling the scriptures and the prophecies. Third, it's about Jesus being a suffering Messiah. That's really interesting because as we know, part of the issue about accepting Jesus was the sense that the Messiah was going to overthrow Rome, that he was going to be physically, worldly authoritative. And what Jesus did is he flipped all of that on its head Jesus suffered. And it is the suffering where Jesus actually does what he was called to do. And, fourth, that he would be raised from the dead. And that in his rising, he ushers in a completely new world. And it's that new world, that new reality that Paul is calling people into. And fifth, And this is most important. Everyone is in. So we've got scripture, the fulfillment of the scripture, the suffering of the Messiah as fulfillment of the scripture, that he would rise from the dead and change death forever and make sure that every person gets invited to be in. Now that's all very good and paul appeals to agrippa right after he says all of these good things and i thought it was really funny the way that the story goes paul has begun his defense he's told his conversion story and he's gotten to this climactic moment and festus cannot handle it anymore and festus verse 24 says, while he's making this defense, Festus exclaimed, you are out of your mind, Paul. Too much learning is driving you insane. So I can remember a particularly good sermon. This was years ago. It was not here. And I was just, I was in the moment, and I was talking, and I was like building up to it, and I was getting to this climax, and I just knew it was going to be so good. And I get to this moment, and I was, I was playing. I had in my head I was going to pause, like dramatic pause, right? Silence. Boom. And so I get up there and I'm like running, running, running and I just stop and it hangs there and I mean every person is looking at me and then a phone goes Ooh. Have you heard that ringtone on an iPhone? That crazy like sci-fi Twilight Zone ringtone? I lost it. I started laughing, I could not help it. And it was for a moment, there was a split second where I was literally like leaning forward, you know, pause. And this phone goes off and I immediately look at one woman who always sat right here, who we were good friends and she was laughing so hard, she was about to vomit. I mean, she was in her pew coming apart and I lost it and I just laughed. And I just, I fell over and I was like, well, I mean, there you go. It was so good, it was so good. Um, And that's kind of how I feel Paul is here in this moment, right? He has revved up and he has told his conversion story and he's aiming right at Agrippa and he's about to get there. And Festus is like, you are crazy. You have lost your mind. And so Paul just says, okay, okay, okay. So he turns right to Agrippa. Look at verse 27. He says, King Agrippa, Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, are you so quickly persuading me to become a Christian? And Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that not only you, but also all who are listening to me today might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul just lets all the drama go and goes right at him and says, I know you believe this stuff, and I know this stuff makes sense to you. And Agrippa hears it loud and clear, and Paul says, yeah, I do think that I want you to become a Christian. Verse 30. Then the king got up, and with him the governor and Bernice and those who had been seated with them. And as they were leaving, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to the emperor. Interesting moment. Paul sold this to Agrippa. We don't know what happens to Agrippa, but in this moment, something shifted, and Agrippa knew not only does he not deserve death, but he implies he would have freed him But now Paul is in the system. Paul's made the appeal. Festus could take that away, but then Festus would have been the one who did that. And we know that Festus is not decisive. So because Paul has already made the appeal, what we will see in the next two chapters is Paul will now be transferred to Rome. Even after this moment where he really does sway Agrippa in the end. Last question or thought before we go? Then it's Holy Week, so I wanna make sure you guys know, we do do church between now and Sunday. Pick something good and you will love it. We, start, we have Thursday, Friday, Saturday, all at 7 p.m. We also have a Good Friday service at noon that is meant for families because many schools are off on Good Friday. And so if you've got young people in your life, this service is really what we do for families on Good Friday so that it doesn't mean out too late on a Friday night. So plug in somewhere. And then of course there's Easter Sunday on Sunday. Yes, stations are at 11 on Friday. Then the service is at noon. And we also do stations each day um, in Holy Week. So lots of times to plug in. Yes, if you visit saintmichaelorg slash you're gonna see all of the offerings and see what we've got and who's doing what. All right. Yes, there's a meditation again today at 12. Lots of things to do. Do something. See you all next week.